Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode, where you're going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find this show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate here at Acton. And for the first time ever on Acton Unwind, we're joined by a special guest, ISI Fellow at National Review, co-author of the essay, Is Critical Race Theory Un-American? in the winter 2021 issue of Acton's Religion and Liberty. So way ahead of the whole critical race theory becoming a huge national issue bandwagon, uh, Nate Hockman. Nate, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Eric, it's good to be with you and uh, both of all of you guys. It's uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Today, we're going to discuss the surprisingly good jobs report and what it means for the pandemic, uh, as well as the Beijing Winter Olympics. But first, I want to go to Georgetown, Georgetown Law School specifically, where uh, quite an incident over the last couple of weeks. So I'll give the brief on what happened, and then I'm going to toss it to Nate, who actually had some firsthand experience with all of this. So formerly... Uh, Vice President at uh, Cato Institute, Director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies, Ilya Shapiro, uh, is named uh, in late January the Executive Director and Senior Lecturer at the Georgetown Center for the Constitution at Georgetown Law School. Now, as everybody, I'm sure, is well aware, because we've discussed it on this podcast, uh, Justice Breyer is retiring from the Supreme Court, so... Somebody like Ilya Shapiro, unsurprisingly, is weighing in on what's going on with that replacement, the nomination Biden, President Biden will make for that. Uh, And failing to observe the sagest advice out there, which is don't tweet, Ilya Shapiro tweeted, and I'll, I'll read through this quickly. Uh, Objectively best pick for Biden is Sri Srinivansan, who is a solid progressive and very smart, even has identity politics benefit of being the first Asian Indian American, uh, but alas, doesn't fit into the intersectionality hierarchy. So we'll get a lesser black woman. Thank heaven for small favors. Now, for people who are familiar with Ilya, we've had him on this show, been reading him for quite a while, knows uh, and I think can read pretty clearly that this is very poorly phrased. It was a tweet that he apologized for and then deleted. Uh, But the implication that many people have tried to read this, I think, in bad faith is that he was saying that any black nominee, because President Biden, of course, has pledged to nominate a black woman to the court, is a lesser black woman. Whereas he's talking comparatively to the potential pool of nominees that fit the affirmative action promise that Biden has made versus Sri Srinivansan, who he thinks is the best possible candidate for that. So outrage erupts, as often happens on Twitter. Uh, He is placed on administrative leave at Georgetown Law School, which brings us to the experience you had, Nate, which was the sit-in that Georgetown Law School students had – including a meeting with the uh, dean of that law school, trainer, I think his name is. Uh, Why don't you tell us about that experience, what you saw while you were there? Yeah, so most of what I observed was via this Instagram live stream, um, which was for some reason something that the 
the Georgetown Black Law Student Alliance, which was the main group holding the sit-in, thought would be a good idea to broadcast live. Um, because I, I tried to show up in person to report, and I think largely because of COVID things, I, I couldn't get into the library. But what I saw was uh, it was resembled what anyone who's been paying attention to what's been going on on our campus campuses for the last few years uh, would recognize by now as this kind of sort of vaguely Maoist struggle session where the dean and the other administrators are apologizing profusely to the students, and the students are demanding that they sort of give more and more concessions. Uh, but what was particularly absurd about this situation, uh, well, was first of all that these were law students. These are not freshmen, right? These are not 18-year-olds. These are uh, law students at one, of, at one of the top law schools in the country. Uh, and secondly, just the, the sheer absurdity, absurdity of their demands, I think, went above and beyond the normal kind of campus wokeness that we're used to. So they were demanding a designated place to cry in response to these poorly worded tweets. They were demanding reparations, which included, uh, for at least one of the students, uh, free food provided to them by the dean. Uh, and the, the other absurd aspect of it was that the dean was essentially just trying to give them everything they wanted. There was not a single critical word from him. It was, yes, yes, absolutely. What can I do for you? Uh, absolutely, you want a designated place to cry? We can provide that. Absolutely, you want free food? Yeah, we can provide that. So I think the reason that the the piece sort of blew up partially was that the persecution of Ilya is unjust for any number of reasons, but it was also partially because the students were behaving like five-year-olds, frankly, to be candid, and the dean of the law school was not telling them <laughs> that they were acting like five-year-olds. He was indulging them, um, which I think is partially why this situation has continued to get worse, is because these kids are getting encouraged by the administrators at Georgetown Law. Yeah, I, I'm interested to see the uh, Georgetown Law School is going to be borrowing from like your average Midwest Catholic church and implementing a cry room. But that's uh, <laughs> <clears throat> interesting choice. But as, as you point out, Nate, it, like we are talking about 22, 23 year olds, people in law school. These are not undergrads. Uh, but. As you pointed out there, the thing that sticks out to me, and we see this in so many of these incidents, we saw it with Barry Weiss at the New York Times, where you have a group of, in that case, younger employees. In this case, it is law students who are throwing this fit. And you don't have the adults who are in positions of authority willing to stand up and say anything about it. Why? Why are we seeing so many people, which I guess now would be either younger boomers or older generation Xers who are in these positions of authority, just completely incapable of standing up to these younger people who are making quite ridiculous demands of them? Yeah, it's a really important question, and it's one that I've thought a lot about, not just in, in the context of this story, but as someone who graduated college relatively recently and had sort of similar experiences um, on my campus, which is that you have a whole lot of professors and faculty members and administrators who are not necessarily true believers, right? They're not, the, the dean of this of the, the law school is not, is clearly not fully bought into the kind of vaguely ideological sort of campus ideology that that uh, these students are, are professing, uh, but is completely unwilling to actually say a critical word about it. Uh, I think the easy answer, and, and there's a lot of truth to it, is just cowardice, right? Which is that the dean uh, doesn't want to be targeted by the mob. So the alternative is to throw Ilya and anyone else under the bus while trying to appease the mob. Um, 
And, but I think there's a, there's sort of a deeper set of forces at play as well, which is that you have leaders of our elite institutions now who are not willing to actually stand up for the institutions. So the dean sees the sort of larger forces in our society, sees that these students and the the kind of movement that they represent across the country um, have all of this momentum behind them uh, and doesn't want to stand in their way and would rather save his own hide than, than stand up to defend Georgetown and the integrity of the lawyer lawyerly uh, profession altogether. So it's, it's a combination of personal cowardice, certainly, but also trends in our society, uh, which make standing up to this stuff a lot more costly personally uh, than it might have been even five or 10 years ago. So Nate, your reporting on this has been really, really interesting. Um, and one of the questions I had when, when talking about this, one of the things the students in that sort of closed door session that was, that was, that was broadcast said they wanted the administration to intervene on their behalf against other students who they felt were belittling them and what they were trying to do with the sit-ins. So obviously not all of the students at Georgetown are on the same page here. Um, what, from being on the ground and doing some reporting, what's your sense of how large this contingent of sort of aggrieved students is over against, you know, the number of students that either either don't have a problem with this appointment or are or are actively supporting uh, Ilya Shapiro in this. Right. So one of the challenging things about figuring that out, because it is a really important dynamic to try to tease apart, uh, is because of the power dynamics at play, where a relatively small amount of loud activist students hold a disproportionate amount of campus power, it's really difficult to tell how many students are not on board with this. But my impression from talking to some kids on the ground who really are the sort of small minority of kids who are loudly dissenting from this, as well as, and this squares with my own experience being a relatively outspoken conservative on campus, is that on most college campuses, you have this sort of broadly liberal student population and a lot of them are also broadly apolitical. They just want to put their heads down. They want to sort of go along to get along. Uh, and they are really not fully on board with the really crazy woke stuff. But they're also, they see that as broadly being their side. And they're certainly not going to speak up against it. Um, so you've got this contingent of sort of 10 or 15% of the student body that are disproportionately powerful, that are loud activists, like you're seeing with the kids at the sit-in. You're seeing this sort of 40, 50% of the student body that's broadly thinks of themselves as liberal, isn't fully on board with that, but isn't going to speak up. You've got another, you know, small segment of the student body that really does have serious reservations about it, but doesn't want to speak up because it's, it's sort of uh, really uh, costly for them personally to actually say anything. And then you've got the sort of five or 10% of students who are actually willing to put their personal reputations and careers on the line to actually speak up. Uh, and you saw that small contingent of students voice their objections in group chats uh, and I, I had some kids who were sending me screenshots of that group chat, which I which I wrote about a little bit, uh, and they did endure real consequences. I mean, you had you had kids getting kicked out of racial affinity groups. You had kids getting kicked out of class group chats for defending Ilya's tweets. Uh, I had one kid who was a first generation um, uh, law student who's a Hispanic son of illegal immigrants get accused of being privileged for defending another student's right to defend Ilya. Uh, 
And he's told me that he's not going to speak up anymore because he's worried he's going to lose his scholarship. So this, this is a real sort of chilling effect that you're seeing. Um, and the, the small number of kids who are willing to speak up are, are really courageous, but no one has their back on this campus. And last of all, the administration. And, and that's the real problem, I think. It always sticks with me that the Nicholas Christakis incident at Yale, where the video of that that was shared, the students are saying to him where he is trying to, and it's over this, you know, now seems almost completely ridiculous idea of what Halloween costumes students could wear on on campus, that he was trying to engage with them. He was trying to have a conversation. Maybe even you could consider it to be an argument. And the rebuttal to him was, you know, like, well, I don't want to discuss it. I want you to understand my feelings. And you get this entire transition to this emotional, highly emotional way of presenting things where, you know, I'm, I'll am i turn 40 this year. I remember being on a college campus and being in a bunch of philosophy classes where, you know, my senior year, we had a philosophy of law class where we were reading Bork and Scalia amongst many of the other, you know, very prominent um, left uh, legal thinkers and having a very pointed argument about many of the things that Robert Bork wrote in uh, Slouching Towards Gomorrah. And we were able to have that conversation. I'm still friends with a lot of the people from that class who, you know, I could jokingly say are to the left of Mao Zedong. The environment now seems to be entirely different. And there is, you know, the you, you get that thing with, you know, people say, you know, the darn millennials today. So I, I'm a millennial. You know, they, they say it interchangeably to mean teenager. And it's not true anymore. It's a different generation that's there. What, Nate, do you think is the difference in, you know, the Again, you mentioned that this is generally a small number of people on college campuses who have overwhelming influence when it comes to this kind of stuff. Uh, what What is it, though, that is bringing this out in this particular generation, your generation, that we didn't really see in, in mine or you know, Sam's a Gen Xer in previous generations? Or, or in other words, uh, defend your people. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> defend my people. I think the uh, the the big sort of uh, feature here, which is why you're seeing not just college campuses and law schools, but elite institutions in general uh, get crazier, has to do with institutional power. Uh, it's like it, it is a relatively small group of activist-minded kids my age and slightly older, certainly. But I think the the size of the group actually doesn't matter that much if all the power is on their side. I mean, remember that the conservative movement was started by a relatively small group of elite intellectuals, uh, but they were very good at wielding institutional power and uh, they were did very well for themselves. The same thing is true of the, the student activists in the 1960s who took over college campuses. They did not represent the the views of their entire generation, but they still dominated the college campuses. And in many ways, what we're seeing today is the result of what they did in the 1960s. So it it's t- difficult to tell how much these kids represent views that are widely held in my generation. But what is clear is that they represent views that are widely held or at least deemed acceptable in the places that make the decisions about the directions of these elite institutions. And that's what matters. Um, and, you know, this is why I'm sort of, uh, I, I think conservatives in, in confronting a lot of these challenges, we see how insane s- situations like this are. 
and we say we see how irrational the arguments that these kids are, are making are. And we say sort of, well, obviously, because they're so irrational, because they're so self-contradictory, you know, we can sort of defeat these ideas in the marketplace of ideas. And it's only a matter of time until people see how insane that they are and, and there's a backlash. And I think having spent time on a college campus relatively recently and, and, rep- and reported on stuff like this, I'm a little more hesitant to make that argument because if you actually look at what these kids are saying and the way they're deploying ideological arguments, it really ideological or intellectual coherence and consistency isn't really the point. Like the wokeness or whatever you want to call it is not really in a coherent ideology. It's more or less just a smokescreen for wielding raw political and institutional power. It doesn't really matter what they say. The point is that they it's just words that they sort of say as magic incantations to get their way. So you accuse someone of being a bigot, that allows you to wield power. Uh, and, and that's why I think we need to understand these things in the context of power relationships to a certain extent, rather than a rational set of ideas that can do, be defeated in the marketplace of ideas. And, and the, the kids, the radicals on, on campus understand that a lot better than a lot of their conservative opponents do. I want to bring Sam in here. Sam, I know you know uh, Ilya Shapiro. Uh, we've had him on the Acton Line podcast uh, to talk about his most recent book on judicial uh, Supreme Court confirmation hearings and judicial nominations. Uh, if if not for look, you know, Ilya even acknowledges that these this was very poorly worded what he was saying there on Twitter, which again I think underlines the sagest advice that exists out there: don't tweet. But if it wouldn't have been this, I, I get the feeling it would have been something else. It it would have been the same kind of students at Georgetown or wherever he ended up or wherever he went that would have found something else that he argued that was too objectionable for them. And we'd be having a version of the same thing that we're seeing now just because of who Ilya is and what he thinks, not really as much about this particular incident. Well, I think that's right. And the irony, of course, is that um, Ilya is not a conservative. He's a libertarian. (laughs) This is what I find so interesting is that he probably agrees with a lot of the students' views on a number of different things, which is, I think, ironic, whereas a conservative would probably attract their ire for all sorts of other reasons. But it does point, I think, to the fact that if you are not willing to conform either by word or by your silence to the type of orthodoxy that is being pushed on campuses by relatively small groups of students, as well as very large numbers of university administrators who now are a very powerful force on university campuses in a way that I think a lot of people who are not involved in the academic world don't quite understand just how much of a presence they are, how ideologically driven they are, and the way that they think about the world is deeply problematic. And that makes it even harder for professors <clears throat> who may have be sort of moderate liberals or whatever to, to say, well, no, I think someone's entitled to express their views. It's not unreasonable to say that choosing people on for a Supreme Court position on the basis of their race is a problem. It's not unreasonable to say that. The fact that uh, so many professors at universities are unwilling to say these things, I think owes something to the fact that they're very concerned about the ability of administrators to shut them down. Uh, If you talk to professors who are in the academy 
50, uh, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, they will tell you that administrators were seen and not heard and they had no pretense. They didn't claim to be somehow the people who were running the place. The place universities were generally places in which uh, professors were the people who actually mattered. But it's administrators who matter now. And they exert enormous power on campuses, including against professors who might be inclined to defend free speech. But I think it, the, your general point is right, Eric, insofar as if you are a conservative, a classical liberal, a libertarian on campuses, uh, you have to assume that there will be people watching everything you say, everything you tweet, uh, anything you put on Facebook, any type of social media, who will be looking out to get you. They will go back and try and read things that you wrote 10 years ago, articles that you wrote 15 years ago, trying to find something that they can pin on you as a way of essentially trying to destroy you. The only other thing I'd quickly add is that this is not a new phenomenon. This is how ideologues operate. If you go back to the 19th century and you look at some of the the hardline Marxist Bolshevik agitators in Europe uh, in the 19th century. This is precisely how they operated. And they're not interested in coherence. Coherence is, 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 is not important to them. Consistency of position is not important to them. Logic is not important to them. None of these things. Reason is not important. What matters is power. That's what matters to them. And so the things that we would say, like, well, that's not a fair assumption or the, your argument doesn't seem to make sense because it's contradictory, the sorts of things that I think civilised people do, they're not interested in that because that gets in the way of achieving the objective. Yeah, there's a piece in National Review, uh, Nate's publication, National Review, today about the University of Michigan, just uh, a couple hours away in Ann Arbor, uh, their uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion staffing has quadrupled over the last 20 years to the point that Sam was just making about administrators and the important role that administrators are playing in all of this. And probably, you know, again, the more it, you know, we, we've had uh, on the right over a long period of time a lot of consternation about college professors and the kinds of things that they are teaching to students and not that that wasn't without merit you can certainly go through course catalogs even going back to when i was in college and taking a look at some of the more ridiculous classes and some of the more ridiculous premises that are being uh, employed in those classes, you know, how many different Marxist analyses can you possibly have of literature? You're going to find out thumbing through a course catalog. Uh, but it, it it's become evident that it is less the professoriate than it is this administration. And I can remember that I mean, well enough from my own college experience that the administrator that also ran the Black Student Union at the small school that I went to was had exercised outside power. My freshman year, there was this massive protest against one of the fraternities there because they were having a fraternity service auction. Even the language of that had evolved over the years. It used to be a slave auction. People decided that was generally not a good thing to call it, so they changed it to a service auction. And the argument was that this was irrefutably linked to slavery, which, you know, 
on one hand, I see what you're saying. But on the other hand, you know, some uh, SAE is going to go clean somebody's kitchen or, you know, take them shopping or something. It It's not at all meaningfully comparable to slavery. But nonetheless, you had this protest about it. And you, I think you see more of it being encouraged, again, not as much by the pro- professors who I think are as fearful of the students in many cases as and cowed into silence as many of the other students are that, that Nate referenced, but the administrators who are not only egging it on personally, but in this DEI context seem to exist exactly for the purpose of encouraging this kind of thing. It's a very good example, Eric, of uh, the way that DEI works, right? Because it becomes its own justification because people with such a job Wherever it is, whether it's in the universities or the corporate sector, etc., um, for them, in the long term, you don't want the problem, their, their perception of the problem to be solved, right? Because if it was, they don't have a job anymore. <laughs> there's, a, there's a self-interest uh, dimension to the way that this works, right? Because it's not just the desire for ideological purity that I think drives many of these people. It's also because DEI is a big industry now. It's a very big industry and it's very hard, whether you're in the corporate world, the academic world or the nonprofit world, it's very difficult to escape what is, after all, a set of ideological propositions that, uh, that to question raises, is, to even question it, is to tie yourself as someone who's somehow out to exclude people. I think this is something, this is an aspect of all this that isn't discussed enough, which is just the basic nature of institutional incentives in all of this. I mean, the the bureaucratization of the university and to a certain extent, the bureaucratization of big business, of all of these sort of private institutions has followed a very similar path as the bureaucratization of big government. This is something that some, like Ludwig von Mises talks about this in his book on liberalism, the, the bureaucratization of government directly led to the bureaucratization of all these private institutions and the explosion of, of DEI bureaucracies on college campuses is the direct result of, to a certain extent, government policy, to a certain extent, ideological trends. Uh, but you know, Yale now has a ratio of one to one of administrators to undergraduate students. That They have the same number of administrators on campus as they do undergraduate students, which is just insane compared to even the Yale of 30 or 40 years ago. So the explosion of the sort of collegiate version of the administrative state is the direct result of the fact that once you have administrators on campus, they have institutional incentives in growing their power, adding more administrators, making sort of administration a larger and larger part of campus life. Uh, And that is self-reinforcing, just like the administrative state in, in government is. So I think thinking about institutional incentives on college campuses, um, in the same way that we think about institutional incentives in in the executive bureaucracy, for example, is a helpful way to understand this. One other quick thing, though, um, on on Ilya's tweet, the thing that that sparked all of this, I think I would, I think it's important for conservatives and libertarians and anyone who cares about free speech and colorblind equality under the law, just to point out that, at least in my opinion, I'll speak for myself. While the tweet was clearly poorly worded, the use of the the phrase "lesser black woman." Um, is certainly cringe-inducing. I think we can all recognize that. If you actually read every word of the tweet of what it's saying in good faith, I think personally 
that it, it was essentially true. What Ilya was saying was defending the principle of colorblind equality under the law, and that was clear to anyone who was reading in good faith. So it's not it, it, what one of the sort of most infuriating things about this situation is in the past you've had cancellations for people who have actually done and said things that are worthy of censure, even though they shouldn't get canceled. So the problem is an overreaction to a genuine offense. In this case, I actually think it's a completely unfair reaction to the expression of a fundamentally true and noble sentiment. And that's, I think, what makes this situation particularly bad. So it's worth, I, I just think that the, these, the, the tweets that Ilya is in hot water for need to be defended on principle as poorly worded, but expressing a fundamentally true sentiment. Um, because he really was defending the principle of colorblind equality under the law, and that, that needs to be recognized. He's defending the principle that Martin Luther King defended, right? That's right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. The only other thing I'd add in there is there, there's an arguable point. And I, I agree with your analysis, Nate. There's an arguable point in what Ilya is alleging there, which is that it is just transparently obvious that Sri Srinivansan is a superior nominee to any of the potential candidates that we're discussing now, um, which, you know, look, I am I'm not a lawyer. I do not play one on TV or on this podcast. I am not in a position to do this kind of analysis. But of the people that I've read, um, the at least the the top of the group of potential nominees that we're discussing that Biden is is likely to put forward are eminently qualified, at least by having hit the certain credentialing marks. Um, so you're really engaged in a very uh, small ball argument over whether Sri Srinivansan or uh, any of the other potential candidates is really the superior one. That's the arguable point to me. But I, I, I agree with Nate's analysis of all of that. And I think it is the disservice that Joe Biden has done to this whole process by saying that out loud in public, you know, there's this push for ever increasing transparency. So is it a good thing that we know rather than having made a backroom promise to Jim Clyburn that he was going to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court that he came out and said it? On one hand, I can understand that argument. On the other side, he does a disservice to the entire process and to whoever that nominee is going to be because you know going into it that he's only looking at a subset of potential candidates in the same way that he was looking at a subset of potential candidates for his vice presidential pick. He's done a disservice to the whole thing by saying ahead of time there are these certain qualifications um, of immutable characteristics that they have to meet rather than coming out and basically presenting it in a much better political argument to say, I looked at all the possible candidates and, you know, this person happens to be a black woman is the best possible candidate I can put forward. He does it a disservice in the way he's approached it. But if we continue this institutional analysis, that is precisely the point. Because what is it that we are defending when we defend Ilya Shapiro? We're defending his right to make arguments, to advance opinions, and we are defending the privileged place that that has had in the academy that we call academic freedom. In the bureaucracy, when we make the argument of the quote-unquote best person for the job, we're making a sort of meritocratic argument that is antithetical to, and both, both of these sorts of arguments are antithetical to the ideology of diversity, inclusion, and equity. So 
it should not be surprising that those sort of principles come under either explicit or implicit attack by those who want to change the structure of those institutions and who want to acquire that sort of institutional power. Right. I, th- I think this is, a, this is an important example. It's illustrative of how the DEI bureaucracy is eating liberal education, right? You can see this is, this is, this is a really important point. This, you can see very, very vividly in this context the tension between the, the basic traditional principles of liberal education that drove the university uh, and the DEI bureaucracy and the sort of underlying ideology that both drives the bureaucrats in the DEI administration uh, and also sort of sanctions and reproduces their power, right? It's it's both the actual ideology they subscribe to and the use or deploying of ideology as a way to firm up and shore up their power. The two are fundamentally at odds with one another. Uh, one is winning, one is losing. And the Ilya Shapiro uh, situation is a tragic illustration of the actual real world consequences of that. The other thing I think what's worth mentioning here is to go to back to your point about uh, President Biden, Eric. I mean, what he did was basically affirm what I think has been very clear for a long time, that the political left in the United States, for them, everything is about identity. It's all about identity groups, identity politics. And that's the way they see the world. I don't think it's just political strategy. I think this is how they actually view the world, that everything is about group, group identity, um, that everything comes down to things like what your skin color is, what your religious beliefs are, um, your school, you know, all these sorts of, all these different things that are used to break down and categorize people. And of course, what's lost in this is the idea, first of all, that merit is rather important. Uh, but also the individuality of people as well. That's being suffocated by the left as a consequence of this um, immersion in identity politics, which becomes weaponized, not just in universities, but increasingly in public life, in corporate America, uh, through the form of DEI bureaucracies. If you go to your human resources department of your average big corporation, I guarantee it's full of DEI ideologues. It's also amazing how unnuanced it has become. And I think this is evident in the whole Whoopi Goldberg kerfuffle as well, because it's it'd be one thing to have an, an argument about, you know, uh, some of these certain unmutable characteristics in, in, in the way that we've been discussing it and as ex- largely exist out there. You, but you see in what Whoopi Goldberg said. Um, that, you know, you, you, she can't see the the race issue when we're talking about Jewish people because you're talking about people right. that look white to her and other people who look white to her. It's collapsed the whole thing down into black and white quite literally and metaphorically. And it is, I think, a disservice to that whole conversation. Let's wrap up this topic here since we've got a guest from National Review with apologies to Rich Lowry. Do a, an exit question on this topic. Uh, so I will start with you, Dan. Ilya Shapiro has been placed on administrative leave, I think, for two weeks. I think the second week of that is 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 this one. So it should be coming to uh, an end. So it wasn't a defined period of time. It was while this investigation goes on. Uh, eventually, Ilya Shapiro will be dismissed from his position at Georgetown. Yes or no? No. 
No, I, th- I think I think um, there is enough of the professoriate that is invested in academic freedom, and they're invested in that in that privilege. And I think there is enough of the professoriate that would push back severely on that. Um, so the power struggle will continue. Sam, Ilya Shapiro will be eventually dismissed from Georgetown. Yes or no? I'm inclined to agree with Dan that uh, after a lot of huffing and puffing and a lot of uh, public cowardice on the part of academics, deans of faculties, etc., that that he will be uh, allowed on the campus, maybe allowed to teach some seminars, etc. But of course, the problem is that he'll be watching his back from the very moment he steps on campus. Nate, yes or no? Yeah, I'm loath to make overly optimistic um, predictions because uh, I don't want to jinx it. But I do think that the tide is turning, the momentum has, has shifted, um, and that Ilya ultimately will uh, be allowed to keep his job. I'm not as optimistic, though, that it's because there's a body of, of professors at Georgetown Law that are willing to actually stand up for academic freedom loudly. We really haven't heard that um, during this entire saga. Uh, but again, I think it comes down to institutional incentives, which is that the blowback that the Georgetown Law Administration got largely from conservative media and free speech groups as a result of this has been so significant uh, that the costs now of them for firing Ilya probably outweigh the costs of, of not firing Ilya. Um, with that being said, uh, the fact that he gets to keep his job does not necessarily mean that it's not going to be a hostile work environment. Uh, so I, I think the situation he'll be returning to will be uh, a, a nasty one in some situations, even if he technically gets to keep his job. And, and that's the tragedy of this whole situation. Yeah, uh, the, the three of you, I'll give you credit. You you softened me on where I was going to come down on this to think that it's a little closer than I thought it would be. I, I don't think he ends up getting to keep it because uh, if we will include um, Nate's piece and the reporting he did on this in our show notes, if you read that and you examine the behavior of the dean of Georgetown Law School, I just have no faith whatsoever that he is not going to cave on this. So we will see what happens. But I want to turn now to the jobs report that we got on Friday of last week. What's particularly interesting about this is you had the White House prepping people for bad news, to to borrow a phrase from Joe Biden, uh, assuming he was on a phone call with his uh, Ukrainian counterpart, to brace for impact, because this was going to be a particularly bad jobs report. You had the story out um, a couple days prior to the jobs report coming out from the payroll company ADP, they were predicting that private payrolls fell by 301,000 in January uh, versus the estimate for a 200,000 job gain. Um, Well, we got the report on Friday and it was 467,000 new jobs added in January, uh, well ahead of the Wall Street estimate of 150,000. You had wages surging as well, up 0.7% for the month and up 5.7% for the year. We can draw in a bit of inflation conversation into this as well. And you had 
this incredible performance beyond what we were told was going to happen. You even had revisions upward of the previous two months. So we have been adding jobs like crazy. And the reason that we got all this caution about this jobs report was, of course, because of the Omicron variant. We were going to say it's they were going to say it's temporary it is down because of Omicron, but it's going to come right back. And lo and behold, there doesn't seem to be an Omicron impact on the jobs numbers at all, which to me would seem to indicate that, well, yes, for some people, particularly those still with comorbidities that that COVID-19 affects, Omicron is not no deal, but it is what we've been saying all along. It is more mild. It is easier to deal with than the previous variants, and people can get on with their lives. But what you clearly see is an inability for people in positions of political power to go along with that and recognize what I think the American people have been saying for months now, which is that they are largely done with this and they want to move on with their lives. Why can't we just get it moving on, Dan? I am I'm extremely encouraged by this jobs report and I th- and I think it's indicative of that we are. Um we've had news in the last couple of weeks of several nations in northern Europe basically just among them uh England, Denmark, um Finland, I believe Finland has ended all legislation about this. The, the, all the, mitigation the, measures. The, yeah. the, the pandemic is officially over in large swaths of Northern Europe. I think people are getting back together here. The other encouraging thing in this jobs report, counterintuitively, is that unemployment is up. Because one of the things that we've seen throughout the pandemic is decreasing levels of workforce participation. Um, what we're seeing when we're adding jobs to the economy and the unemployment rate is going up is the fact that people are re-entering the workforce. There are people that left the workforce over the course of the last two years that are now for the first time looking to get back into the labor market again. And that's very encouraging. We've talked a lot about sort of analogies to the 1970s before. And I think these numbers are indicative that what we might see is more akin to the late 40s, early 1950s in which we did have sort of persistent high inflation, but we coupled that also with economic growth, which is not ideal, but is much better than a, than a future of stagflation. One thing I would add uh, to what Dan just said is that incentives are at work here as well, right? Because people who were in the work- workforce who, for whatever reason, decided to take a break from the workforce, they have now more incentive to enter the workforce because there's the prospect of a considerably larger paycheck because employers are willing to pay more because the labor market is tight. Uh, you mentioned the the health situation, I think, Eric, and I think that's obviously some factor to do with it insofar as a lot of Americans are saying, okay, well, we all have to live in the real world where there are risks every day. Every day I get up in the morning and I go to work, there's a risk I could be in a car accident, etc. And Omnicrom has sort of given me that view when it comes to thinking about the, the pandemic. But also, I think it's important to keep in mind, there are many people, I suspect, who are now very low on savings, because that's, in many cases, what they were living on for a considerable period of time while they checked out of the, of the workforce. So th- there's a lot of different factors that are going on here, which I think are important. Uh, the 
the, the wrinkle in all this, of course, is inflation. Because, uh, first of all, the inflation rate is such that it basically nullifies a lot of pay increases right now, making them essentially putting people in the position whereby they're not making money, they're actually losing money, comparatively speaking, even with pay increases thanks to inflation. But also, if the Federal Reserve, as is anticipated, starts to ramp up interest rates, then that's going to have the effect of dampening uh, the money supply, obviously, which is going to dampen down growth at some level. So it's not clear to me that this is necessarily going to be the beginning of a major turnaround in labour markets because of this overhanging monetary policy problem that the Fed has finally, it seems, steeled itself at some, to some level to try and deal with. One of the things that we saw was uh, leisure and hospitality actually led the gains in this jobs report, which is one of the categories where we were getting the argument that, hey, maybe people aren't coming back to these jobs because they don't particularly like them. Well, and look at the numbers now. We're actually seeing people return to those jobs. So uh, that is another interesting wrinkle in all of this, that it, it, it is not uh, – it, it doesn't hold with what the previous argument line was, that people just don't want to wait tables anymore. Well, it, it turns out that perhaps, as Sam said, people low enough on savings and given the opportunity, as I see every time I drive past the Applebee's here in Grand Rapids, that you get $500 just for signing on to work there. Uh, the incentives actually are uh, pretty good for people to pick up those kinds of jobs now. I think the other thing that's worth mentioning is is the fact that while workforce participation rates are starting to climb again, they're still well below what they were uh, during in, at the pre pre pandemic levels. And at the the measurement that we saw at the pre pandemic levels was actually um, you know, workforce participation rates, particularly for young prime age men, which is the most worrying aspect of it, have been declining for for more than a decade. Um, so they were already in decline at the beginning of the pandemic, and then they shot way down precipitously. And they're starting to climb up a little bit as the economy starts to kick into gear again. But they're still below what they were at the beginning of the pandemic. And at the beginning of the pandemic, they were already abysmal. So this is not necessarily an overall sign of societal health. I think it's important to look at these economic numbers and try to understand them um, in sort of the traditional political economy sense, which is as uh, indicators of a broader, this broader sort of health of a society. Uh, and when you have a disproportionate number of young prime-aged men who are sitting at home, um, do not have a job playing video games and smoking weed all day, which is actually, if you look at the studies, that's what a lot of these men are doing. Um, and that went up exponentially during the pandemic. That's a real problem. Uh, and th it's inevitable that it's going to climb a little bit as the economy kicks into gear. But uh, this is still a sort of civilizational crisis, frankly, that we're dealing with in terms of young men who are directional, directionless and don't really have any motivation to go out and make something of themselves. Um, and small upticks uh, is not necessarily reflective of a real recovery, the, the, the kinds of which that we'd actually like to see. Yes, yeah, especially when you're getting recoveries to previous numbers that were worrisome. I mean, we've talked plenty about this through the course of the last going on two years now of to what extent did COVID-19 create new problems and to what extent did COVID-19 reveal or exacerbate problems that already existed? And I, I think in this case, as, as Nate illustrates with when it comes to you know, young prime working age men, yeah, it, it was a problem already. COVID 
made it worse. And it's good to see it recovering at least to the, num- the, the, the status quo ante. But the status quo ante was still an issue of concern and should still be an issue of concern going forward. I, the, the thing that captivates me about all of this is how this is just another opportunity for an off-ramp. We talked about European countries that you mentioned earlier who are dispensing with COVID mitigation uh, uh, measures. And this is, again, yet another off-ramp for a lot of people who I have to think, to, to talk about the politics of it for a brief moment, have to have looked at the last six months or so and see what I think we all see, which is that the American people by and large are saying we want to move on with our lives. There was that study that was out recently that said, you know, kind of in the aggregate, 75 percent of Americans, I think it was, want to move on beyond all of this. And yet what I see is, you know, in New York, you had a judge ruling that students could go to class without wearing face masks. And New York is suing, um, is appealing that ruling. You have a fight against Glenn Youngkin's executive order, uh, basically saying the same thing. If you don't want to send your kid to school in a mask, you don't have to. Um, That is being fought in the courts. There may be a little more merit to that because there was a legislative enabling of that policy, and he is dealing with it with an executive order. It'd be more direct to get rid of it through the legislative process. That will nonetheless play out. My home state of Illinois, there was a ruling by a Springfield area judge that – overturned the uh, schools having mandatory masking, again, for parents to make the decision themselves. That is being fought. And most of the districts, I find this absolutely amazing, are just saying, well, no, we're going to keep implementing it anyway, even though it is on appeal. But the ruling itself has not been stayed. I mean, it's my understanding of it, again, not a lawyer, they are um, directly defying a judge's opinion in the case. And you had I get the clearest example of this over the weekend, which was this photo of Stacey Abrams, candidate for governor in Georgia, sitting in front of a classroom of students not wearing a mask while all of these young kids that we know statistically at this point are just not vulnerable to COVID-19, certainly not the Omicron variant. And the, the part of me that used to run political campaigns is just amazed that nobody looked at that and said, guys, can't share this. Bad look. But it is the kind of thing that is going to continue to be enraging to people if if something isn't done about this. So it, Nate, why, why can no one – is it another case like we were talking about with universities where there, you have uh, political leaders in this case captured by a small number of the most radical people and they're continuing to placate them? Why can't people, political actors in their own self-interest here, take the off-ramp? Isn't it partly, Eric, because so many, to do this in many cases would mean many politicians would have to admit that they got it wrong on lots of different levels. Now, I mean, politicians get things wrong all the time. No one's perfect. Everyone makes mistakes. But when you become so locked into a position that your credibility starts to be associated with it, it becomes politically very difficult for you. Look at the case of New Zealand where they've had this uh, Stasi approach to dealing with COVID. They're still unwilling to move away from their very, very radical approach on this issue uh, because I think at least the political cost, especially with their, some of their strongest supporters, would be considerable. 
Uh, yeah, and I think the other thing to your point, Eric, is just power and institutional incentives. I mean, I'm sounding very Marxian on this podcast, but I actually think that uh, thinking of it in in terms of in, in these terms is is really helpful. I mean, if you look at someone like Anthony Fauci, and he's reflective of this broader sort of public health bureaucracy, you'll notice I've written about this a little bit. He stopped talking about an endpoint. I mean, he'll gesture at it vaguely sometimes, but it used to be, I mean, if you can remember all the way back in July, 2021, uh, the line was that once you get vaccinated, you can take off your masks, right? That went away. And now we're, we're, we're actually upping the ante to N95 masks, right? Because cloth masks don't work against Omicron. Um, the, the public health bureaucracy has done very well for themselves in the pandemic. Anthony Fauci likes being on MSNBC every Sunday. Um, he likes people listening to him. If you read sort of interviews with him in the New York Times, uh, there was a New York Times long, long report released recently uh, about sort of Biden's first year in office when it comes to the pandemic. And it has these extensive quotes from Fauci complaining to the New York Times that Biden wasn't listening to him enough, right? This is something that you hear from a lot of the public health bureaucrats. If you are a public health expert, uh, the last two years have been the best two years of your life. I mean, I don't want to sort of be hyperbolic here. Obviously, a lot of these folks have consciences and they're, they, you know, they, they, they think that what's happening is tragic. But you, whether consciously or subconsciously, they are awarded an enormous amount of power and prestige and opportunity as a result of the pandemic continuing in perpetuity. Uh, and no one would want to give that up, right? This is just sort of human nature. Um, so they are actually upset with the Biden administration for not being draconian enough um, in, in their response to Omicron. And part of the problem for the Biden administration is that they feel like they're being the moderate centrists and going between the sort of insane the draconian diktats of the, of the public health bureaucrats on one side and the sort of right-wing libertarian impulse on the other side. But that's a sort of false dichotomy because the vast majority of Americans are moving closer and closer to our position on the pandemic um, and what the Biden administration, by virtue of the sort of echo chamber they've immersed themselves in, thinks is the moderate position is actually much closer to insanity than uh, increasingly a lot of Western Europe and the rest of the world. So as the bearer of sunshine and rainbows with the economy, I'm going to continue to be the bearer of sunshine and rainbows on this issue. Last year at this time, I was canceling a conference because we could not get legal clarity from the Michigan Restaurant Association on where an event could be held. This was an event of less than 15 people. Um, and that's where we were last year. I have since run four similar events with no problems, with every time I go back, with there being fewer legal restrictions and also fewer restrictions put on the, by hotels. This time last year, I was driving, I stayed the night in a hotel in Knoxville, Tennessee. Knox County had a mask mandate. I was on my way to South Carolina, which had a mask mandate until the day I left later in March. <laughs> Things have changed. Um, it doesn't seem that way because there are a lot of real problems that you've all eliminated. But last year was a different world. And we are already getting off that ramp. Very briefly, I want to touch on our, our final topic for today, which is the uh, the Winter Olympics are underway in Beijing. And because they're in Beijing, juxtaposed against that is stories that 
deserve attention, such as the uh, ethnic cleansing of the Uyghur Muslim minority population, uh, such as the oppression of uh, free speech and freedom in general in Hong Kong. Um, We here at the Acton Institute are actually advertising during these Olympics uh, a 30-second spot for the trailer for an upcoming documentary on Jimmy Lai, the uh, entrepreneur and uh, news magnate who is currently in prison in Hong Kong, probably, as the trailer says, the most famous newspaper man jailed in the world today. And I guess the question I'll throw out to you, and we can deal with it very quickly in this sense. So you had the 1980 Summer Olympics. Those were boycotted by the United States and 66 other countries because of the uh, Afghan-Russian war at the time. Uh, You, in the 1980 Winter Olympics earlier, did not have any boycotts uh, because we were threatening that one. There was thoughts that the Soviets were not going to come. Uh, They did come and play, and it produces probably the most iconic moment in the history of the Winter Olympics, which is the United States men's hockey team defeating the Soviets uh, in the miracle on ice, the anniversary of that coming up on February 22nd. And then, of course, the other obvious example would be the Berlin Games in 1936, which, uh, again, well enough in advance of the implementation of something like the final solution, you could see, uh, I think, reasonably project where that might be going. But nonetheless, people showed up and competed there. So let's deal with this uh, topic this way. I'll ask each of you the same question. Dan, should we have boycotted these Olympics and would it matter at all if we did? We did diplomatically, which is basically essentially not a boycott at all. So there is a recognition that this is somehow different. Um, I I think it's unconscionable to be there right now with what has happened in Hong Kong, with the ongoing reports of what is going on in Shenzhen with the Uyghur Uyghur population, with Peng Shui, who uh, has now in a sort of dramatic reversal this last weekend. The Chinese uh, uh, women's tennis star. Yep, who had previously alleged that uh, Zhong Gao Li, a member of the Politburo Standing Committee, had uh, forced, uh, had raped her. Um, had forced her to have sex with him. Uh, she's now come out this weekend and said this is a giant misunderstanding, I believe under duress uh, in an interview. And the IOC uh, met with her over the weekend and basically said this is none of their business and they're not interested in it. So, I mean, I don't know how much more of a criminal enterprise you can have and have, you know, NBC doing, you know, patriotic montages uh, on top of it. I think it's unconscionable. Sam, should we have boycotted and would it matter if we had? Well, as Dan says, diplomatically, we did so. I think it's interesting that viewer numbers are incredibly low, especially in American markets, which really matters. So I think that's significant. There are a lot of people who have just turned off uh, the Olympics for the reasons that some of the some of the reasons that Dan is describing, China China is an authoritarian uh, nationalist slash communist regime that brutally treats Uyghur Muslims. Is engaged, I would argue, in genocide against Uyghur Muslims. Is destroying what was left of freedom in Beijing. And let's not forget the persecution of Christians. Christians uh, in China who don't conform to the party line, who don't accept 
that the government somehow gets to determine what is in Scripture and what is not, and even tries to insert things into Scripture. Uh, so I, I think that it's in many respects what it's done, ironically, is to remind everyone what a nasty regime exists in China today. That's the irony, irony I think, of it all. And it's, it's even hard for a lot of apologists for China, and there are some on the left and there are a few on the right, it gets much, much harder for them to make a credible case in public when you see this type of thing going on and you see the way in which the Olympic movement has tied itself in knots to try and deny uh, what's going on in this t- under this terrible regime. I think the, as you pointed out, Sam, the ability to um, make these the situation in China clear, which is the entire reason that we're running advertising for our upcoming documentary about the life of Jimmy Lai, is because attention is being focused on what is going on in China as a result of the Olympics being there. You know, I, I think probably, yes, we should have boycotted not just the diplomatic boycott, which is rather meaningless, but actually boycott having athletes there. Uh, you know, I. I think that's a terrible position in general because I think Carter acknowledged that he regretted the boycott of the 1980 Summer Olympics. It's really unfair in a way to these athletes who in a lot of these uh, sports, you know, take hockey out of it for the moment. Most of them, this is the only place where those sports are really competed at the highest level. So I think there is an unfairness to athletes like that. Uh, I don't know how much of a difference it would have really made had we actually boycotted it, though. But I think one of the things that uh, this should underline is uh, what was true well before they were awarded to Beijing. And I think this is the reason you see, um, you know, the the World Cup going to uh, to Qatar. You see the uh, Olympics going to Beijing and Sochi and Russia and to places with more authoritarian governments is because well, they're the ones who have no compunction and no resistance about ponying up the incredible expense for hosting an event like the, the Olympics, which you would just have to be crazy to accept because you can go online and you can search the history of all of these facilities that were comp- uh, that were created for Olympic Games that are just now decaying because there's no possible way for them to be utilized. It is a waste of public money. And probably we should set up just, you know, in Athens or wherever, a place where the Olympics are always held so we don't have to do this preposterous thing where we are, like with the United Nations, putting, you know, Syria at the head of the uh, the Human Rights Commission, have to go through this cycle every couple of years. Nate, we will give you the last word on this question. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I think um, we should have boycotted the games. I don't really see a whole lot of utility in not boycotting the games. I admit that I'm usually an avid Olympics fan, but I haven't watched hardly any of it this year. Um, more so because I am busy than because of any sort of principled stand. Uh, but it's it to me, it is it is not a good idea to give legitimacy to the Chinese regime by participating in it. And frankly, it's it's sort of a damning indictment of a lot of the international institutions that are supposed to stand for, you know, the liberal international order and human rights uh, to legitimize uh, China in the first place. So I I hold these international institutions more responsible for this in the first place than I do for American leaders for participating. Once the Winter Olympics were already going to be held in China, to a certain extent, the game was already up. Uh, But with that being said, we, we still, I don't think, should have sent our athletes to compete. Let's call it a wrap there. 
want to thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link to where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Sam, thanks to Dan, and thanks to our special guest, Nate Hockman from National Review. For the Acton Institute, this is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.